Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. As a younger man, John Wesley led the Holy Club at Oxford. Like it sounds, he led his brilliant peers at Oxford in a study of holy living, how to live a holy Christian life. Years later, John Wesley found himself an Anglican priest and was, in his estimation, a failure. He was two ministries into a failed parish in the southern colony of Georgia when he left Georgia and went back to his home in England, beat up and discouraged and depressed. And then something happened. This Anglican priest became a Christian. Um, it's, perhaps it's hyperbolic to say that, but um, one evening during his Christ- this, uh, this Moravian gathering, a Christian gathering at Aldersgate in London, he was hearing the gospel message through, I think it was Martin Luther's commentary on, on Romans. Um, he was hearing the gospel message, and he says, and I quote, I found my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins and saved me from sin and death. This moment is remembered in evangelical history as John Wesley's evangelical conversion. This moment sprung Wesley into his own spiritual revival, and that bore incredible fruit. As many of you know, if you know church history, it ignited a revival all over England and all over the world. To the great displeasure of England's church hierarchy, Wesley decided to take his revival into the streets and began his public preaching career amongst the common folk in England, amongst the poor who would never grace the doorstep of a church. Regarding this great day when he launched his public preaching ministry, John Wesley wrote this in his diary. He said, At four in the afternoon I proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoined to the city to about 3,000 people. The scripture on which I spoke was this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. One pastor comments, Wesley had chosen this text with brilliant premeditation because it was the same scripture which Jesus introduced his ministry to the people in Nazareth. Subsequent history records that John Wesley lived out that text, bringing the gospel to the disenfranchised and to the poor masses of England. The following years also reveal that Wesley was likewise experienced a degree of rejection that descended upon our Lord Jesus when he first brought the gospel message to his people. So I share Wesley's story as a way of introducing the three major parts of our gospel text this morning. We have the power of the Spirit, and then we have the proclamation to the poor, And then finally, we have the rejection of the people, which Patrick is going to preach about next week. So let's look at at least the first two of these in turn, the power of the Spirit and the proclamation to the poor. Let's pretend Jesus had Twitter. What do you think his handle would be? Messiah King Jesus, perhaps? What might he put in his bio? I've noticed that like pastors always love to say like father, period, husband, period, disciple, period. Usually disciple first. So maybe he'd be like prophet, priest, king. Um, (laughs) Actually, I think he would put Luke 4, 18 through 19. 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the closest that Jesus came to giving us a mission statement, his own personal mission statement. If Jesus had a life coach and was like, all right, Jesus, we've got to get down and figure out what you are all about in one statement, this would be it. Notice how the mission statement begins. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. If you've been reading Luke's Gospel, you would not be surprised at this point. The Spirit has been present at every single critical juncture of Jesus' life. His conception in Luke 1.35, the angel promises Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. His baptism, Luke 3.22, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. His temptation... In Luke chapter 4, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So each occurrence of the Spirit so far has just been like a divine hammer blow, driving, point, driving this point home. What's, what's the point? Thank you for asking. To answer, we need to look more closely at the, as often as I, as I love to teach us to do, we have to look more closely at the Old Testament context for what's happening here, and especially Isaiah. We're going to go to Isaiah 61, which Jesus is quoting almost exactly, almost, a little bit of Isaiah 58 thrown in, as he's giving us his mission statement. So if you go to Isaiah 61, you read there what is itself actually a summary of Isaiah 40 through 55. So in Isaiah 40 through 55, the, in Isaiah, if you're reading through, like the, the doom and gloom prophecy suddenly turns to hope at Isaiah 40, the hope of new creation. In Isaiah 40 through 55, we read of a servant figure whose identity is chiefly known by his anointing with the Spirit. That's what sets him apart. He's anointed by the Spirit. Who is sent by the Lord, verse four, uh, Isaiah 48, 16, to enact God's justice and his mercy by doing things like opening blind eyes, and freeing prisoners from dungeons, it's Isaiah 42.7, and who will preach into existence a new people for himself. So the one speaking in Isaiah 61 who begins, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, is de- declaring himself. He's looking back at what's just come in Isaiah 40-55 and said, that's me. I'm the one anointed by the Spirit. I'm the Messiah who's going to do all these things. And all these things signal the arrival of God's kingdom on earth. Heaven breaking in. So now we are positioned to understand why Jesus, when he's in the synagogue that day, unrolls a scroll and finds Isaiah 61. And now we understand why the the Spirit has been present at every critical juncture in Jesus' life. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm the Messiah. The kingdom of God is at hand. The one Isaiah prophesied about is now here. So imagine Jesus in the synagogue that day. He's in his hometown of Nazareth. And much like us, Jesus worshipped liturgically. Um, The gathering began with singing, just like ours, probably a psalm between 145 and 150. It was followed by the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then followed by the 18 benedictions. And then came the reading of the scripture. And Isaiah 61 was read, and then Jesus gives the sermon. Imagine you are there in the synagogue watching this hometown boy from Nazareth be handed the scroll of Isaiah. And he carefully opens to Isaiah 61, and he reads these words, and then he carefully hands it back to the attendant. And then now the air is still, it's thick with silence. Luke's way of capturing that is, and all the eyes were fixed on him. Jesus sits down to begin to teach, and he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And following the sermon, the service typically would have closed with the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you and keep, just like ours ends with blessing, right? Keep you, make his face shine upon you, bring you his peace, but not that day. As we'll hear about next week, instead of benediction, the scene unfolds with an attempt to murder Jesus. A mob tries to kill him, who is in his very person the blessed benediction of God himself. So there's an irony at play. For now, here's what we might say about application for this first point. Through faith and repentance and your baptism, the same spirit that anointed Jesus anoints us. The gospel of Luke is about Jesus, right? And it begins with the spirit birthing Jesus in Mary, miraculously. But Luke wrote another book. What's Luke 2? The book of Acts. And think about how Acts begins, the very same way. This time, the focus is us. Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem until you get the Spirit. Because the Spirit is going to birth in you something miraculous. So just as the Father sends me, so I send you, says Jesus. And Acts is a living out of these same words we hear Jesus claim for himself today. So here's the point. Holistic ministry in the way of Jesus is Spirit-empowered. Which is not to say it is non-physical, but instead it's to say that a truly spirit-empowered life will follow in the footsteps of our Messiah, whose deep life of prayer, and we see this in Luke, Jesus is constantly going away to pray and be by himself all the time. And then that deep life of prayer is then coming out and ministering in radical justice and radical tangible acts of mercy. That's spirit-empowered ministry. Now this rebukes both far-left and far-right supposedly Christian movements, I guess you could say, or or political ideologies of our day. So on the one hand, on the far left, it rebukes an only uh, kind of a a progressive political agenda that is totally devoid of intimate, spirit-empowered connection to Jesus. We must remain connected to the work and person of Jesus by the power of the Spirit as we go about our work for justice. So it rebukes that. On the other hand, it also rebukes, say the sinner's prayer and wait for God to sort out the immigrants and the orphan and the poor and the widow and racial injustice. It rebukes both extremes, while also combining, I think, what is best about both extremes. The gospel is not just social justice, neither is the gospel at all opposed or lazy about justice. The gospel is, we will now see, a holistic Um, weaving together by the power of the Spirit this message that is proclaimed and enacted and woven together beautifully in the person of Christ by the power of the Spirit that now dwells in us. So let's take a bit of a closer look at the substance of this mission statement, of this Twitter bio, um, following his identification as the Spirit-anointed Messiah. We might summarize Jesus' mission statement, the heartbeat of it, this way. Good news for the poor. Good news for the poor. Maybe that would be his Twitter bio. Here's a chart. There's a slide. Sorry, Claire, I didn't prompt you on this. There is a slide in there. There we go. Um, That displays each use of the word poor in Luke as a category of people to whom Jesus has come to proclaim the good news. Notice that in each use, poor is first on the list, except for 722 when it's last, which is actually the emphatic position, the final position. What we take from this is that poor is actually a governing category. Uh, We aren't only to think of just poor people. 
It is a governing category within which all other labels and groups are now subsumed. So there's physical afflictions, the lame and the blind, rendering them ceremonially outcast on the margins of society. There's economic hardship, the, the literally economically poor and the hungry, rendering them socially diminished or outcast. And then there's social afflictions on there, persecution and oppressed, rendering them socially outcast as well. So what form does good news for the poor, all of these poor, take? In a word, liberty. This is the word we read, liberty. Other translations, um, release, maybe. Verse 18, Jesus says, He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, the Greek behind this word, liberty, or release, is um, used nine times in Luke and Acts. And in every occurrence, aside from this one, it's translated as forgiveness. Forgiveness instead of liberty. Now, to plumb the depths of this word, what do we need to do? Where do we need to go, you think? Any guesses? The, good guess. Jenny said Genesis. The Old Testament. Um, not to Isaiah, but to everyone's favorite thriller, Leviticus. Imagine a pool table. Did any of you like to play pool? Like, you know, pool? None of you. Okay. You have a white ball that's hit into another ball, which hits another ball, which finally goes into the pocket. Leviticus 25 is the white ball. Isaiah 40 through 55 is the next one. Isaiah 61 is the next one. And Isaiah 61 finally bounces into Luke 4, Jesus' mission statement. So there you go, a billiards reference. Uh, The language of liberty and release in Luke 4, the language of Jesus' mission statement, comes from Leviticus 25, where we read of the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. We all know God commanded Israel to observe a weekly Sabbath, a day of rest and worship. Did you know he also commanded Israel to observe a Sabbath, observe a Sabbath every seven years? He also commanded Israel to observe a Jubilee every seventh Sabbath. So after seven Sabbath years, so 49 years, they were to observe a Jubilee year on the 50th year. Why? God had redeemed from, uh, it, he had made Israel a people by redeeming them from slavery out of Egypt. And the Jubilee year was one means of trying to keep them out of slavery. So what happened? The idea of the Jubilee year was this. Imagine you were very poor. You had fallen on hard times. Maybe a, a plague had come and, and taken all your crops. You may have needed to sell yourself, it was very common, or your family or your land in order to survive. You would become a slave The year of Jubilee was the year where all debts were canceled. All land was returned to the original family ownership. You were released from everything you owed, liberated. Liberated from your slavery. And if you have, still have college debt, gone. Imagine. It was a way of hitting a great economic reset. You know, that liberated the poor out of slavery and returned them to dignity, to social and economic dignity. Just as the year of of Jubilee signaled a new start, a new liberty, and Isaiah draws on this theme as it talks about the Messiah, Jesus says, that's me, I'm Jubilee. I have come to cancel your debts. Now, Jubilee originally did focus on social and economic hardship, and Jesus includes that, but ultimately he's putting his finger on the spiritual aspect. He says, he doesn't downplay social and economic hardship, but he does see sin as the primary captivity of his people. And sin's effects as social and economic captivity. 
And so by forgiving sin, Jesus was healing the brokenhearted. By forgiving sin, he was giving new spiritual sight to the blind. By forgiving sin, he was liberating captives and restoring these um, economically and spiritually poor to themselves and to their communities. It had a distinctly social aspect. It's beautiful. And so as we advance through the gospel, Jesus not only proclaims, but he actually enacts this message. When he casts out demons, what is he doing? Jubilee. When he opens blind eyes, what is he doing? Jubilee. Extending forgiveness, what is he doing? He's enacting jubilee. He's canceling debts. He's freeing people from slavery and restoring them to the dignity that they have in Christ. So the point is not really, when we read these miracles, the point is not the miracles themselves so much as how those miracles actually testify to the reality of the good news. Jesus is jubilee. He is the Messiah. He has begun the inbreaking of heaven on earth. And friends, I guess one major takeaway from this is take heart because he is still breaking in today. It can be easy to forget. Do you recall in Luke 7 when John the Baptist was wondering if Jesus was really the Messiah? He sends his friends to ask Jesus. How does Jesus respond to him? Tell John, yes. No, he doesn't say that. He says, go and tell John that what you have seen and heard, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. The most emphatic way he could answer yes to a Jewish man. Now, if you are curious about Jesus or you're just wanting your faith in Jesus maybe to deepen, look at this with me. Let's look backwards through Jesus' response to John. Are the, are the poor still having good news preached to them? Yes. Who are the poor? Well, we've said the pious poor and the economically poor. Those who are without money and also those who are desperately aware that they are sinners in need of God's grace. And it just so happens that being actually poor often unlocks the heart to be receptive to the fact that I'm needy and broken and I need help. But it isn't just for the economically poor, it's for the pious poor. So if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You're forgiven. In him your debts are canceled. That's good news for the poor. Okay, great, but are the dead still raised? Are the deaf still hearing? Are lepers still cleansed? Do the lame still walk? Do the blind still see? Yes. I'm going to tell you a true story. During his 15 years as a narcotics officer and a deputy medical examiner, Greg Spencer saw a lot of violence and death, a lot of very gruesome violence and death, and he became very hardened by this. And There's no other way for, for him to deal with it, so he became hardened, and eventually he left law enforcement to drive trucks. Soon after that, he was diagnosed with macular de- degeneration, which is an irreversible condition um, <clears throat> of the eye. He was going blind. Soon later, his doctors declared him legally blind. He was seeing at 2,400, and he was placed on disability insurance. He went through the full training offered by the uh, state of Oregon, the Oregon Commission for the Blind, to learn how to do Braille and, and live as a blind person. Sometime later, Spencer decided to follow Jesus. And he was still haunted by the many memories he had, the the images he carried around of just gruesome violence and and death. Well, he decided to go to a church retreat that was focused on the healing of the mind. Not a physical healing retreat, but a a, a spiritual and emotional healing retreat, much like what Cindy offers in The Healing Journey. Um, Well, during a time of prayer, he was praying, and his blind eyes were closed, and he was actually praying that God would cleanse his mind of these images. And then he heard three short words spoken to him by the Lord. You are clean. 
And when he opened his eyes, his sight was fully restored. And the sense of a, of a cleansed mind and his newfound sight made this hardened man just downright giddy. And he couldn't stop pointing at things to his friends. His friends tell the story. He's pointing at things in the distance. He's like, can you see those birds? And they're like, yeah, we can. Um, he's like, can you read that license plate? And he was just giddy. Well, he wanted to get back to work and get off disability, but the Social Security Administration wouldn't accept his claim because uh, macular degeneration does not spontaneously reverse. So he had to be seen by multiple specialists. Ultimately, the same specialist who had declared him legally blind, seeing 2400, now confirmed that he had experienced, quote, a remarkable return to visual acuity, just shy of 2020 vision. The Social Security Administration finally acknowledged what several of those who had encountered Jesus in the New Testament acknowledged. They had been blind, but now he can see. How common are these kinds of miracles? They, they're not common. That's what's so hard about them. But they are more common than you think. One Pew survey that included 10 countries on four continents concluded that in these countries, around 200 million people, they estimated, personally witnessed divine healing through prayer to Jesus. It's one thing to have an odd account here or there, but you have to start taking it pretty seriously when 200 million people say, I saw this. Some of them were probably psychosomatic. Some of them were probably frauds, but not 200 million of them. If you'd like to explore this further, um, I shared this on Facebook. Some of you may have seen it, but this is a book by Craig Keener. He's an excellent New Testament scholar, very reputable, very reputable publisher. This is a condensed version of his longer scholarly work, which is like over a thousand pages, which is, deals with some of the difficult questions around miracles, but ultimately tells a lot of verified stories about miracles, hundreds and hundreds of them. Recommend that to you if you um, are interested. Why don't they happen more often? That's what these stories leave me feeling like uh, with the question. I don't know. I don't know. People who work in hospice see far more death than they see miracles. And so it can be very hard knowing that God is actually capable of doing something, but for unknown reasons, isn't doing something. It can be very difficult and discouraging. In Keener's words, perhaps because God merits our trust even when we feel disappointed and shattered because faith in God is more than faith that God will do a specific thing we ask for. The announcement of Jesus is that the kingdom of God is breaking in, and we get hints of it along the way, but the full reality of heaven on earth, no more tears, no more sickness, remains a future hope. But I love Spencer's story of all the ones I could have chosen. I chose it because it shows us how the inner healing of his mind was, was as important, if not more important, than the healing of his eyes. The good news to the poor is ultimately good news of spiritual healing from bondage to sin. It's of jubilee. It's of forgiveness and the favor and the love of the Lord present with you, even if it means being present with you in your suffering. Which leads finally, well, actually, we're, we're saving it for next time. I was going to have a third point, but we're, we're going to relegate it to Patrick. You're going to handle the rejection of the people next time. Yeah, you got it. Okay. So imagine once again you're there. You're in the synagogue with Jesus. What do you see? What do you smell? What, what do you observe? He rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He sat down. And now imagine your eyes are fixed on him. And imagine he meets your eye. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What if we, like the church in Acts goes on to do, followed in our Messiah's footsteps 
to the poor and to the captive and to the blind. I want to take a minute to pray. I want to invite us to ask the Holy Spirit how we can do this this week. Is there a debt you can release economically? Um, is there forgiveness to extend? Is there a coworker, a neighbor, a friend who's carrying a burden that you can help lighten? Is there someone in your life who's curious about Jesus? You've had some initial warm-up conversations with them, and maybe the next invitation is, hey, do you want to study the Bible together? Do you want to read the Gospel of John and just talk about it? Is there someone in your life who is sick and the Holy Spirit is inviting you to step out in faith to pray for their healing or to pray for their endurance to suffer with Christ or maybe just to bring them a meal and tell them you love them? What if he asked you out of your economic abundance to pay for a vacation for someone who can't afford it and you know they need one? If, what if there's someone who's just lonely, on the fringes, too often overlooked, and you can just befriend them and invite them over for a meal? Is there a ministry in our community, Denver Rescue Mission or, or otherwise, to the least and to the lost that the Holy Spirit may be inviting you to invest in or volunteer in, as some of our Adventers already are? But the reason we pray and ask for this is because it can be easy to feel like, and I often have felt this in my life, of just like, oh my gosh, like I have to love the poor. i got to do everything. I, might, I should do this. I should do that. You should not be doing it all. You are not the Messiah. But we do need to ask for the Spirit's anointing to encourage us to step out in small ways of faithfulness. So ask for the Lord for a particular way, not to take on the whole burden of the world's poor, but is there just some small particular way that you can practically love the poor in your life? So we're going to pray for that. I invite you to open your mind and heart to what the Spirit might want to speak to you for about a minute. Lord Jesus, we do pray you'd speak. Help us to become people in a church who love the poor as you love them and to proclaim and enact good news for them. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.